Bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. If you have a Bible, we're heading to the first epistle of John, chapter 3. It's right up toward the end of your Bible near Revelation. 1 John, chapter 3. And we're also going to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. So 1 John, first epistle of John, chapter 3, and the gospel of John, chapter 14. Hallelujah. We serve a great God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. First epistle of John, chapter 3, starting to read at verse 1, says, Behold... What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John, the 14th chapter very familiar passage that I often reference. Reading again from verse 1, says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, everybody say, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Amen. Father, Lord, we're in your house, in your presence, Lord God, and we just pray, Lord, that as we open your word together, Lord, that we would be reminded, Lord God, of who you are, Lord, and what you've done for us, Lord God, and that it would cause us to take our eyes off the temporal things of this life, Lord, of the things that we invest so much effort and time and resources into. Lord, and to remember what really matters above all else, Lord God. Lord, anoint me, I pray, to bring your word. Open our hearts to receive it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is in the middle of an intense and intimate conversation with his disciples. They are sharing or possibly have already shared their last Passover meal together. The crucifixion is only hours away. And Jesus tells his disciples at the end of chapter 13 that he is going away and that for the time being they cannot follow him, but they will be able to follow him later. He speaks of going to his father's house and of preparing a place for them. And I think we understand, but for the sake of emphasis today, it's important that we recognize that when the Scripture speaks of the Father and of the Son, that it does not speak of two separate persons or two separate parts of God, but rather the Son being the revelation of the Father. As we learnt or were reminded on Wednesday night from Colossians that He is the image of the invisible. Amen. And Jesus said that he would go to prepare a place. 
that preparation that Jesus speaks of, he's not telling us that the mansions are only partially built, that the project is not yet complete or that it's behind schedule. We know that because of his stepfather, Jesus was probably a skilled carpenter. But when he said he went to prepare a place, he wasn't talking about hanging doors or fitting windows or putting roof trusses in place. But the preparation that was necessary to take place in making it possible for us to follow him afterward. And at this point, while he is having this conversation, it is still very much impossible for mankind to be able to enter into that place that he was speaking about. Amen. I hope this morning you believe very much in a literal heaven. Heaven is not a mystical, imaginary place, but it is literal and it is physical. But it is also spiritual. And even its natural state is beyond our present understanding. Because it's in a realm where God exists, where we can only glimpse at this time. Amen. But it is the place that is prepared for the church. Its location cannot be found with a GPS or for those of you that are a little bit older school with a street map, but it is the eternal destiny of the church of the bride of Christ. And Jesus in John chapter 14 described it as his father's house. And I want to preach to you this morning from this thought for just a little while and then we're going to have communion together. The view from the Father's house. The view from the Father's house. Amen. When we speak of God as the Father from a scriptural perspective, there are several ways that we can understand that. One of those is that God is the Father of all creation and that He is the Creator. Everything that was made and is made is made by Him and for Him. And so in a creative sense, He is the Father of everything. We understand that he is the father of Jesus Christ, or in, that, in the sense that it was his spirit that caused Mary to become with child. And for those this morning that have heard the gospel, and I thank the Lord, I believe that's just about all of us here, and have obeyed the word of God, he is father in relationship. He is father as our redeemer and as our savior. And it is this third meaning or this final meaning that is the purpose for which man was made. That's why we were created. That's what separates us from every other aspect of creation, from everything in nature, from everything in the animal kingdom. It is all a product of God's creative power. But when we are born again, we are not just a product of His creation, but we are beneficiaries of His redemptive relationship, of His desire to know us more as simply the one who made us but that we might understand what he would have us to be in relationship with him. Amen. That's why we were made. Adam was the first son of God. It was in Adam that God desired to be reflected. It was with Adam that God desired to have communion. Genesis speaks to us a little bit, gives us a glimpse of the relationship that God had with Adam before sin came on the scene. It was a perfect relationship. It's, it's something that even though we are born again because of our flawed nature, we yet only aspire to. But when our salvation is complete, and what I mean by that, I don't, I'm not saying that we are partially saved now, but there will be a completion when He returns. And we are ultimately saved for eternity. When we reach that point, 
We read from John that we shall know him as he is. Amen. And what a day that that will be. But we also understand this morning that through sin, mankind began to be used for purposes other than was intended by his creator. And that started down a pathway of self-harm and destruction. Now, we live in an age where there's a lot of concern with young people that that are into self-harm, that because of problems they have within, they damage themselves without. But spiritual self-harm has been going on for as long as there is humanity. People have made choices that have been damaging to their spirit and to their soul. Perhaps not visible on the outside, but every time a person makes a decision to commit a sin, to partake in something ungodly, it's just as graphic as if they slash their flesh. But it happens within. It's not visible to the naked eye, but it is very visible to the sight of God. See, almost every product you buy comes with a warning about the dangers of using it for something other than its design purpose. Many of you have seen some of the humorous ones that we think, really, that was necessary? Things like remove child before collapsing pram. And hair dryers that say, don't use while in the bath. I mean, apparently they are necessary. Because when something is not used for its intended purpose, the outcome is often dangerous. If there are electrical devices that are not used in their right environment and with necessary safety precautions, that which is a, uh, a tool or a, or a mechanism that is beneficial to us can kill us because it is taken out of its purpose. And humanity, taken out of its original purpose, is destructive and dangerous and self-destructing. Amen. Romans chapter 1 tells us, you don't need to turn there, but Romans chapter 1 tells us the tragic tale of what happened to mankind as they begin to worship the creature more than the creator, as they changed the truth into a lie, and as they pursued unnatural lusts and vile affections. It is interesting and sobering to us that throughout the scripture, whenever man wandered from God, the most intimate of relationships were the first to be perverted and corrupted. Immorality goes hand in hand with sin. It goes hand in hand with idolatry and ungodliness because that which God made to operate within the boundaries of His design, when it is taken out, instead of being something that is precious, it becomes something that is horrible and destructive. Amen. And that's because we are not following the manual of the producer. Romans 1 goes on to tell us about the consequences of these decisions. The consequence, the Bible talks about the things that they, they reaped in their own bodies and in their own selves. The consequences were and continue to be horrific because mankind is using itself for things that it was not designed to be used for. When I was maybe about six, six and a half years old, Some of you know this story, but my little sister was four. And my father built a barbecue in our backyard. We had some leftover blocks from the house. They weren't little red bricks, but big Bessa blocks, concrete blocks. My dad built a barbecue and, you know, had the space where the plate was supposed to go and the bit over, I don't know what the bits are called, but the bit over here. And and it had a chimney. It was about four of these blocks in the chimney. And my father hadn't got around to uh, putting the plate in that space. 
My little sister was a little bit uh, brave and foolish at the same time. She was inclined to do things that were risky. And at four years of age, she climbed up onto one side of the barbecue and got one of my father's golf clubs and laid it over that gap where the plate was supposed to be and decided that she was going to walk the tightrope. Got one or two steps onto the golf club and lost her balance. And as she fell away from the chimney, she reached out in the reflex and grabbed the chimney. And it was not designed to be grabbed. And as she fell, she hit the ground and two of those big blocks landed right in the middle of her back. And uh, long story short, she spent 10 days in hospital with a ruptured liver and nearly died. And my father never, ever finished the barbecue because of what happened. It upset him. I guess he took a bit of responsibility for that. But you see, that was not designed for that purpose. It wasn't a gym. It wasn't a swing set. It was a barbecue. And because even though it was just in the innocence and the foolishness of a little child's mind, she used that for something that it wasn't intended for. And the consequences nearly cost her her life. That's why parents, we have to watch our kids because they don't understand and that's why they do things like want to stick something in a PowerPoint or, or those things that little children do out of curiosity. And we know the consequences for things that aren't used properly. When you take that to a global and a universal level, and from the throne of heaven, from the Father's house, God looks out over people that are made in his image, that are hardly recognizable anymore. They're broken, they're twisted, they're disfigured. Sin runs rampant through humanity like an epidemic that cannot be contained. And as God looks out over the earth, he's grieved by the wickedness, just as he was in Noah's day. He's repulsed by the sin, and he's separated from it by his holiness. But in all of those reactions that God feels, that repulsion, that grief, that distance, there is one reaction that comes from God that overrides all the others. And they are the words that are written in John 3 and 16 where it says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son beyond his grief, beyond his repulsion, beyond the abhorrence of man's wickedness, love reached beyond those things. And in the midst of our filth, and our disgusting condition. His love sent His Son to the earth to redeem us. Amen. He looked at you, and He looked at me. He looked at all of us in our filth. And He felt many things, but the strongest thing that He felt was love. You know, there are countries that you can go to in this world that don't have the government-provided public sanitation that we do. If you don't know what that means, I'm talking about sewers and drains and plumbing. And you go to some of these very poor places and there are open drains and there is rubbish in the streets. And when you're not used to that, it's very confronting. When you're used to having your garbage picked up nicely once a week and different bins for different things and you don't even know where the sewage goes and you don't even care as long as you don't have to see it. And you go to some of these places that is in your face, the aromas, the sights, you're, you're thinking of the disease and the germs and all of those things, and it's, it's horrific. When God manifests himself in flesh, when he walked the streets of Jerusalem, Judea, 
and to Samaria and around that region, it may not have been physically disgusting, but spiritually, he walked through filth and sewerage and the open sewers of man's hearts and minds, and it confronted him. But his love still kept him on course. That's why we read from 1 John, which we believe was written somewhere around about 90 AD, some 60 years almost after Calvary. The apostle was still able to write and say, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. He said, What kind of love is this? There's nothing else like it in the world. There's nothing that compares to the love that God has for humanity. The world doesn't get it because they don't get Him. And until they get Him, they won't get His love. But such is His love for us. Amen. You imagine, we cannot see the spiritual realm as He could. But God manifest in the flesh could see people's spirits, their hearts, their souls. He could see the condition of mankind. And as He walked down the street, he knew who was a liar, who was a murderer, who was a thief, who was an idolater. Whatever the, whatever the sin was, he was able to look into the hearts of people and diagnose their spiritual condition. But because of who he was, it could not touch him because he was God manifest in the flesh. Such is his love for us. Amen. That's why the apostle Paul wrote, in 2 Corinthians, he spoke to the church there in chapter 6 and verse 17. He said that if we would come out from among them, be separate from the things of this world, touch not the unclean thing, that the Lord would receive us. And he said that he would be a father unto us, that we would be his sons and his daughters. Amen. That's what it's about this morning. It's about being the children of God. He is our creator. That cannot be changed. It doesn't matter what you or I do, he's our creator. I was at the doctor's the other day, as I walked across the car park, there was a car that had, you know, those little yellow square things that hang in the back of people's rear windows that say baby on board? This one said atheist on board. And the personalized number plate said, I evolved. And I thought, well, we know what their opinion is. I want to leave a sticker that said, from what? But we, we, we cannot separate ourselves, whether we acknowledge God, whether we deny His existence, whether we serve Him or we don't serve Him. He is our Creator. That cannot be changed. Amen. But that is not simply what He desires, just to be our Creator. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And when that conversation in the upper room at the Feast of Passover was finished. He left that place when they'd eaten together. And just as a side thought, if, you, if you've ever noticed, when you read that in the Gospels, in at least two of the Gospels, it says, and when they had sung an hymn, they went out. You ever wonder what they sang? Probably nothing that we sang this morning. The tradition, the Jewish tradition tells us there is a collection of psalms called the Hallel Psalms, which similar to Hallelujah, it means praise God includes Psalm 113 through 118 and also Psalm 136, which was the psalm they normally finished with. So it's possible that the 136th psalm is the psalm they sang 
before they went out from the upper room. And you can read those later out of your own interest. But Psalm 136 starts out with, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And all 20-something verses of that psalm end with, For his mercy endureth forever. Amen. God manifest in the flesh with the disciples, singing a psalm that prophetically he was about to fulfill. If you read the others in that group, you'll see it says such things as, I have taken the cup of salvation. It's not a coincidence that in the garden he prayed about a cup. It wasn't just some random word, but he was fulfilling Scripture all the way along. Bless the Lord. But he left the upper room and they came to a place that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the place of the olive press where olives were crushed and the oil was extracted. And he began to pray like he had never prayed before. You see, Gethsemane was where the surrender to Calvary took place. It wasn't in the judgment hall. It wasn't standing before Pontius Pilate. It was in the garden. When you read about Jesus when he's on trial and he stands before the high priest and then Pontius Pilate, there is a calm that he has because the decision is already made. In the garden, he made the decision to submit himself to the Father. Amen. And if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 14, I want to read something together. Mark 14 and 32, sorry. Mark 14, 32 says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. You can only begin to imagine what Jesus was going through, knowing that Calvary was right in front of him. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou will. He prayed in the garden, Abba, Father. And you've heard teaching on this before from this pulpit. But we know that Abba is the Greek for Father. But that it speaks of intimacy, not simply somebody's position as a father. In fact, it is said that in the servants, in a house where people had servants, that sometimes that the servants would refer to the master of the house as father. But the servants were never to refer to the master as Abba. That title, that designation, that term of endearment was reserved for the master's children. And it spoke, that term spoke of what some commentators call unreasonable trust or total trust and dependency upon the one to whom that is being ascribed. And when Jesus prayed in the garden, his humanity at that point was putting its unreasonable trust, its absolute dependency upon the Father. And I would go as far as to suggest that at that point that Jesus Christ in his humanity 
was as intimately close with the Father as he had ever been because it took incredible trust to do what he was about to do. Amen. There are only two other places in the Bible where we read the words Abba, Father together and many of you could tell me where they are but one is in Romans 8 and 15 where it says that you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Galatians 4 and 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Both of these passages in Romans and in Galatians speak to us about the intimacy that we have with God through the infilling of the Holy Ghost. When you are born again and you speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives you utterance, there is a witness, the Bible says, that tells us that this is God, that this is right, that recognizes that this is who I'm supposed to be. This is the manufacturer's instructions. This is what I was made for, to be a vessel, to be a temple, to be somewhere where the Spirit of God resides. When he writes to us about Abba Father, it's about that intimacy. Those verses talk to us about how that we feel the love of God as His children. Not just as a Creator, but as our Father. As our Abba Father. And this morning for you and I to be able to have that Abba Father experience, it was necessary for Him to cry Abba Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. One could not happen without the other. If he was not willing to submit himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, then there would be no infilling of the Holy Ghost. There would be no spirit rising up within us that says, yes, he is my God. He is my Heavenly Father. That when you're at that low point and you don't know what to do and you go into the place of prayer and it's as if God is right there with you, without the Garden of Gethsemane, Without that Abba, we would have no Abba. Without him saying, I will submit myself, we'd be just as lost as we always were. But because he was willing, one could not happen without the other. Amen. In Mark chapter 8, it says in verse 34, that when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? When the Lord spoke about us taking up our cross... I'm glad we understand that it's not literal crucifixion. It's not talking to us about being physically crucified. That would be pointless and a tragic misunderstanding of the Word of God. But it speaks to us about that same total surrender and unreasonable trust that he demonstrated in the garden. When the Bible speaks to you and I about being believers who are willing to take up our cross, it means not my will but thine be done. 
It means not what I want in my life, not my plans, not my dreams, but Lord, let your will be done in me. I want that level of intimacy that His Spirit speaks to me, not just as a distant Creator, but as my Abba Father. And if you want to have that, you cannot go past Calvary. You must go through. It is the only way. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. He was going a way that nobody had ever been before. He was going to go to death. Plenty of people had died, but he was going to rise again. Nobody had gone that way before. And so it was necessary for him to give his all that he might fulfill the purpose and the will of God. And this morning, if we want to see his purpose in us, we must be willing to take up our cross and follow him. We must make him the Lord of our lives when we make our decisions when we choose our direction, when we make the decisions that are going to impact our eternity. I want to know Him as my Heavenly Father, not just my Creator. It's easy. It's easy to say God made me. That's not hard. But I want to know Him. You see, that's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, he said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Amen. When he said the fellowship of his sufferings, that word fellowship is also translated as communion. It doesn't mean that for me to know the Lord that I have to suffer physically, that I've got to be beaten and crucified, but it means there must be a, a cross in my life. There must be a place where if I want the power of the resurrection... There must be a place where my will dies. There must be a place where I say, God, not what I want anymore. You cannot just as it is impossible for us to say, Abba, Father, until he said it first. If you want the power of the resurrection, you must also have the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Again, it's not necessarily a physical thing, but it's identifying with Calvary. It's saying, God, I want your will in my life more than anything else. He went from the garden to the cross to the tomb, and then he left that tomb on the morning of the third day. And if you want that resurrection power, the pathway has not changed. You cannot have a resurrection if you don't first have a crucifixion. You cannot have newness of life unless the, old, the Bible talks about that we are planted in the likeness of his death. When that happens, then we can know the glory of his resurrection. But as long as we live to ourselves, we're dead to him. As long as we're doing what we want to do, then we don't have the power of his resurrection in our lives. The two cannot be separated. Talking to you this morning about the view from the Father's house. How does he see us this morning? When he looks at his church, when he looks at the people that are here, how does he see us? Are we surrendered? Are we taking up our cross? Or are we just a passing acknowledgement of the fact that he saved us from our sins? Luke chapter 15, I'm coming to a close with this. Again, is a very well-known passage of Scripture. It talks to us about things that are lost. There's a lost sheep. There's a lost coin. And then in verse 11 of chapter 15, we are told the story of what has come to be known as the prodigal son. 
of a man that had two kids, two boys, and they both worked for their father as is the way, it was the way then. But the youngest son had itchy feet. He was bored with the family farm. He'd, somewhere somebody told him about the big city. Somebody, possibly one of his friends, who, as is the way of young people, to listen to the council of friends rather than the council of parents. Some friend along the way has told him of better opportunities. And in his impatience, he pushes his father. I don't believe that the request for his goods was the first time. I believe the first time he asked the father, the father probably said, no, it's not time, don't be foolish. But the young son would not be silenced, and so he went at his father again and again. And finally, the young man takes half of his inheritance, and he can't get out of there fast enough. Much like humanity, God has provided everything for his creation, and yet it can't seem to get to sin quickly enough. And we know the story, many of us have known it since we were in Sunday school, but the younger son went far away to a far country, wasted his substance with riotous living. In modern vernacular, he partied hard and compromised all the morals that his parents had taught him. Not just what was in his wallet or on his credit card, but all the things that his parents had said, this is not a good way to live. He wasted his substance of the things that made up who he was. And as is the way with sin, it did not satisfy. And a famine came on. You see, that's, that's what the devil does. Once he's taken away everything of value, he leaves you in the land of famine. The devil, the Bible says that the thief cometh not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And the devil will entertain you while you've got something worth having. But once he's stripped you bare... He will leave you in a place where you are destitute. You need to understand something in young people and older people. There is no mercy with Satan. Mercy belongs to the Lord. There's no, I'll just hold back with the devil. He waits for an opportunity, for a crack in the door, for an inch of opportunity to destroy you. He does not think, well, not today. They're having a bad day. You have a bad day and he wants to sink the boot into you. And this young man found that out only so well. And when he had run out of money and he was in the lowest of the low jobs feeding pigs, he got so hungry that he even considered eating the food that they were eating. And I don't even want to know what they fed pigs 2,000 years ago. Don't even want to know. I want to still have an appetite come lunchtime. But he got so destitute that finally he said, even the servants in my father's house are better off than I am. Even those that I used to walk past every day and look down my proud nose at. Those people that I used to say, get my shoes, fetch me my donkey, do this, do that. And they ran at his voice because he was the father's son. Even they had a better life. And so he said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to repent before my father and ask him just to make me a servant. But the verse that I want to draw your attention to in Luke 15 is verse 20. Where it says, and he arose and came to his father and when he was yet a great way off his father saw him we're talking about the view from the father's house this morning when he was a great way off his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him didn't deserve any of it not a bit He deserved a really long lecture and a lot of hard work to prove that he was serious. 
That's what he deserved. But the Bible says that when he was still a long way off. You know, he wouldn't have been, wouldn't have looked, he would look very different to how he did the day he moved out. The day he moved out, he was healthy, strong, got good clean clothes on. Mum had probably made sure he packed enough sets of underwear to last him for a while. Had his wallet filled with money. Everything was looking rosy. But when he came back down that road coming home, the shoes were probably gone. The clothes were threadbare. He'd lost a lot of weight. When you get down to pig food status, you're not plump. He was thin. He was haggard looking. Probably hadn't shaved. His hair was probably matted and long. And many people would not have recognized him. But you see, there was somebody looking down the road. Somebody who hoped that the sun would come back. Somebody who everybody else had almost forgotten that he existed. The servants were going about their business. The older brother thought his little brother was an idiot anyway, so he didn't care. But the father, whether the house was up on a hill or whether he was on the rooftop, as was the custom in that part of the world, it says when he was a long way off, he saw him. And something about the way he walked, about the way he carried himself, even though he changed so much, the father said, that's my image. I made that. I'm going to clean it up. And that's what he did for us. We were a long, long way off. And we looked absolutely nothing like we were supposed to. The way he made us and the way he created us to be, his image, his glory, his reflection, sin had sunk us into the pig pen. And everything that was of God was all but gone. In the sight of men, there was nothing of value left. But when we came and said, I will go to the Father's house, somebody was looking down that long and dusty road and they saw past their addictions They saw past their immorality and our hatred and our unforgiveness and whatever else that you and I were involved in. And he saw through all the junk and he said, there's still a little bit of my image left in that life. And he ran. He ran. God manifest himself in flesh and walked the filthy streets of this world because of his love for us. Hallelujah. Let's stand together this morning.